Ladies and gentlemen, the following program is produced live on the Outlaw Radio Network and heard worldwide in many fine locations, including Air FM, by Magic Matt Allen, a true broadcasting genius. <laughs> I am the legendary Burl Bear. The man in the lawyer chair is not a lawyer. Don, yes, Don Waldman had to do something actually legal or barely legal this weekend. Filling in, as he did last week, Mark Boyer, fact checker extraordinaire. Hello. It's, <laughs> hi. And on the phone, the man who owns Las Vegas. <laughs> Dennis Griffin. Dennis, hey, nice to have you back on the show. Earl, thank you very much. Pleasure to be back with you. Well, I'll tell you, I, I want to jump right to the prologue here, man. And uh, uh, for those people who haven't heard you on the show before, Denny writes incredible books about uh, organized crime. He's written fabulous books about Las Vegas and the mob. And if you go to the Las Vegas airport and you go to the bookstore there, it looks like he owns the bookstore. I mean, right out from the guy. I mean, he's making a fortune just off of tourists who've never even hit a slot machine. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, isn't it, Dennis? So, well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know the racket. Well, listen. Uh, if you carry my books, no one will do nothing. Anyway, you were minding your own business, being a crime writer in Vegas, and you get an email from a lady who says, I got a friend, and he's a mobster. What's uh, what to, to, to pick it up from there. Yes, I, uh, I got an email, and uh, a lady said she had a friend who was a mobster, a former mobster, and uh, was interested in, in, in doing a book. Yeah. She wanted to know if I would be interested, so we we emailed back and forth, and uh, eventually well, I got to meet uh, the subject of the book. Well, was uh, I mean, were you a little iffy? I mean, you've dealt with a lot of gangsters before, professionally, personally, and for amusement. Uh, did you want to know right away? You know who uh, who is this guy? What's his position? Yeah, exactly. I, I wanted to know, you know, uh, who I would be dealing with and 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 the background, even if not the identity right off the bat. I wanted to know the types of things this individual would have been involved with or would know. Uh, you know, thinking about uh, whether it would be a worthwhile project or not. I want or safe. To yeah, yeah. <laughs> that also. Yeah, yes. I mean, because as you as you may know of the uh, several people we've had on the show, including uh, the one last week, people have a tendency to get death threats before they come on my show, and <laughs> and the only thing we've ever killed is people's careers. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's never been totally deadly. Uh, but so you find out this guy's the witness protection program, and you find out he is. He was the real deal, Mr. Andrew DiTonato. And his background? He was an associate of the Gambino crime family out of New York City. Uh, he was in a crew, or John Gotti is probably one of the better known of recent uh, bosses of the family. And um, he worked for a crew uh, run by a gentleman named Nicky Carrazzo, mm. and, and that was a part of the Gambino family. Now, uh, is, uh, is Andrew right there with you? Yes, Andrew. Yes, I am. Hi, Andrew. Hello. It's a pleasure to meet you. Good to have you on the show. Now, I do know that uh, members of your family, was a grandfather or something like that, uh, came to a demise because of the mob. Am I correct? I had an uncle of mine who was, uh, who was murdered when I was a young boy. I was about 12 years old. He was, uh, he was a captain in the Genovese crime family. Now, I would think that uh, something like this would tend to put you off the mob. But what uh, what pissed the mob off 
to for them to knock them off. Well, you know, it's, you know, we have to understand something. In organized crime, everything is politics. And uh, back then, my uncle was a high-ranking member. Uh, there was a lot of there was a power struggle. The boss of the family was uh, diagnosed with having uh, throat cancer, and uh, they had put my uncle in a position to would be the acting boss at some particular time. Mm-hmm. And um, what happened was the boss still wanted you know a bite of the apple after he got out of the hospital. And um, what happened was my uncle. I guess was trying to make a, a, a shot at the top, and mm. this is what happened. Long live the king. Yeah. The king is dead. It sounds like a rough business to be in. I'm kind of surprised exactly. you, you followed into that. Well, what happened was, you know, because you have to understand something. See, where we come from, it's normal behavior. Everybody around us, like me growing up, you know, my friends and kids from the neighborhood, their fathers were either already directly in organized crime in different families, or their guys, their fathers were just knocked around guys. And, you know, so when I was away, when my father was away when I was a boy, I should say, you know, I had other friends of mine and their fathers were, were in prison as well. My uncle was a, a high-ranking member in the Genovese family, so there was nobody ever there to tell us that it wasn't the thing to do. So it was just, expected yeah. behavior. It was just normal operation. It was just normal life for you then. Exactly. So you're 14 years old. That's when you start getting down the road, stealing radios, tires, wheels, cars. Yeah. <laughs> what um, will happen was me and some neighborhood kids, we were out there every day, you know, tires and wheels on cars, radios, like you just said, you know, burglaries here and there. And then as, instead of anybody stopping us for ac- activities, most, most often than not, these guys turned around and instead of saying stop it, they said, hey, what do you guys got? So we had an outlet to get rid of our goods with everybody's connections. And then our crime started to escalate. And then uh, I remember I got approached. I was about 17 years old, late 16, early 17. And um, I was trying to shake down these kids who were robbing money from a local uh, bakery in my neighborhood, um, a bagel shop. And uh, don't, don't mess with a bagel shop. No. So what happened was... Uh, I, I enjoy a nice bagel. Well, yeah, but what happened was, unbeknownst to us, these kids were robbing from the place. So we were just trying to take a portion of what they were robbing. Mm-hmm. But we didn't find out till later they were robbing because they owed a neighborhood wise guy money for gambling debts. Ah. So when they got caught, they put it all on us that we were forcing them to rob. And then what happened was I got called in about two days later from... Nicholas Carrazzo, who happened to be running that area for the Gambino crime family. And uh, he calls me in and he says, listen, he says, heard a lot of good things about you. You're friends with my nephews. You're friends with a lot of guys that are already coming to see me. He says, listen, he goes, well, you're out there in the street. A lot of things can happen. He goes, now, I'm here to protect you from that. He says, you know, if you got some stolen merchandise you want to get rid of or if somebody gives you a problem in the street, you got a home here now. Mm-hmm. He says, none. Those problems will become my problems, he said. He said, so listen, he goes, but I want to tell you one thing, he said, this is like school. Don't you ever, ever miss, because if you miss, you can miss a lot of valuable lessons. And if, he says, we meet here twice a week, he says, and if you don't come here twice a week to catch up with everybody, you're not being a good friend to everybody. He said, so don't ever miss. And from that day on, I was part of the Gambino crime family. And it's kind of like any other career path. You want advancement. You want to make, to make the right decisions, do the right crimes, do with the right people. Exactly, because now from this point on, every decision I ever made in my life was based on how the crew would accept it and for the better good of the Gambino crime family. Now, you could do, you could do deals with, with or get involved with members of other crime families to do things, but your primary loyalty 
always had to be in one place. Am I correct? Exactly. Exactly. You have to know at the end of the day where your flag is. You can make money with whoever you want, just unless there's any sort of like high-profile thing happening amongst the bosses where they'll, they'll tell you before time not to do it. Other than that, you got the green light because you know. Let's face it; it's all networking. You know, we we're all in the street together. Different client families. We're all out there trying to make a buck. So we need to lean on each other sometimes to make that work. So it's accepted behavior. And just as long as, like I said, at the end of the day, you know where your loyalty is. So you were involved in a variety of what we would call illegal, and some would consider unsavory acts, like extortion, uh, uh, numbers, um, all that stuff. Everything. I was involved in all aspects of organized crime. It started out in a younger age. We were involved in a lot of uh, chop shop activity, a lot of stolen car activity. There was big, big money in that. Then, you know, the crimes escalated to, you know, credit card fraud, uh, check scams, um, you know, extortion of drug dealers, uh, dealing drugs, um, you know, I went no-show jobs, making money off, uh, off the construction industry, uh, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, then I got into bank robbery later on. Now, do we uh, see you got into bank robbery? Did you get into actually robbing the banks physically yourself or setting them up? Well, what we did was I would fit both. I did both. We did bank burglaries and bank robberies. So we used to, we used to uh, physically go in rob a bank or do a bank burglary where we would go in and, at night and we would take that night deposit off the wall and uh, whatever bags that were put in there for the people you know throughout the weekends we would sit on the location guys would put the bags in a box we would accumulate you know we would we would assess how many bags were going in if it was going to be good enough to to make a score Sunday night we would go late at night you know before bank opened on Monday we would take the box off the wall and Take, take, it the <laughs> take it home with you. Well, take it home with me. But, uh, you know, and, and that was really, to be honest with you, it was only actually one year out of my life that I did that. I happened to be on the run at the time in 1996, and I had some uh, crew members from another faction of the Gambino client family who used to be around Sammy the Bull uh, area. And uh, we were friends for so many years, they, they ingratiated me with this way to earn, and it kept me out of the limelight from law enforcement because I was dealing with these guys just doing the robberies. I didn't have to go out and do anything else. And it kept me insulated pretty good. I got a question for you here. Uh, even though you're on the, the East Coast, New York, there still was activity in Vegas. There was some uh, crossover action between what's going on in the uh, the Midwest, the East Coast, and uh, in Denny's little area that he controls totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Of Las Vegas. Now, they're, they're, I, I've seen the movies, and, I, and we've all seen the movies, and I worked in Vegas, the Aladdin, doing their uh, promotions and stuff in the 70s, back when the, the real guy running it, I think, was under indictment for murder in Detroit and would land on the roof of the building in a helicopter <laughs> so often. Uh, the, what, what kind of uh, action, what kind of uh, skimming or spillover was going on in Vegas with, with the family? Anything? Well, 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 like when they were doing the skimming and stuff like that, it was a little before my time. But for, for what I can tell you is that the, the stories that came back to me was that a lot of the action went through the, uh, the Genovese crime family in New York. They they were they were really the ones who brought the skim back to uh, to New York. And uh, what had happened was uh, they used to have this this lady who used to come to make the runs. I know she used to come out here every time. She would come out here to get the, the portion of the proceeds that went back to New York. Nobody ever knew about her comings and goings. She would take it to Manhattan, and uh, they had a captain in the Genovese crime family named Fat Tony Salerno. Fat Tony ran that whole operation when this when this uh, transpired, and there was a location in Midtown Manhattan where the money would be dropped off, 
and then they would uh, relinquish the money from there to the other crime families and stuff like that. Now, there is a fascinating thing in, in the book, which is called Surviving the Mob, uh, Street Soldier's Life Inside the Gambino Crime Family. It's a fabulous book, and there's a DVD that goes along with it, which is fascinating. It's getting rave reviews. Uh, and you tell a story in there about how connected gamblers had certain perks in Vegas, like if they took out a marker or something. Yeah, uh, yeah no, that was a Lucchese crime family scheme. What happened was uh, there was this guy from Harlem, uh, he was around the Lucchese family, and back in the 70s, and, and that he had a nice connection in one of the casinos in Las Vegas. And what happened was, what happened if you went to Las Vegas, and, and you were a good guy, and they knew you, and they knew you had some money behind you, he would get you a marker, say 20000 You get a $20,000 marker. So when you got there, you go up to the cage, the guy would give you 20000 you go to the tables, and you'd play. If you busted out and you had no money, at the end of the day, now he would take you, you go back to see him, he would say, listen, here's what we could do. If you could pay half of that tab right now, we'll take 10000 off off your bill. You owe us 20 If you pay us 10 you're even. So the guy would give him the money, they would take the 10 they would get the marker ripped up, and they would split five apiece, and then the casino would never know that the marker was ever taken. Now, uh, there's some sort of three-ply system how they adopted that, somebody brought it to our attention. But they used to work it out their own way. I guess the guy in the casino was able to feed the other people in order to get this done. But that's the way the scam worked. But then, well, and the, every, everybody loved it. But the casino, the casino was out 20 grand. But the, the casino was out the money. Oh, okay. The casino was out the money, and, these, and the guy from the Lucchese family put 5000 in his pocket, and the guy behind the cage put 5000 in his pocket. And I don't know if they had a... I don't know, because I wasn't on, on site, but... I would assume that if they had anybody else to pay off, they'd give them a thousand, five hundred apiece, whatever it may be, to make sure nobody was the wiser. Hmm. So you're moving up in this organization, right? I mean, you're, you got you're well connected in terms of getting along with these guys. Things seem yeah. to be going well. I want to deal. Uh, ask you about. There's a lot of myths about this thing of being a made man. There's a th- thousand myths, and let me tell you something. Years ago, people had this or this this mindset that to become a made man in, in any client family that you had to put in work. And what I mean by work is commit the act of murder for the family. Well, years ago, they wanted you to be able to be a capable person because they knew that if you were willing to go out and commit the act of murder, if you're going to go out and commit murder and they know about it, they know that they'll have that over your head as well as you having stuff mm-hmm. on them. So, but as the years went on, it all became a money's game. It's always been about money, I should say, but now it became a money's game. And then nepotism stepped in, and you had guys buying their badge. So in other words, if a guy was just a big money maker, but he wasn't really a street guy, the boss would want to get him straightened out so he could continue on taking this guy's money. So he proposes him for induction in the family, and then this guy just feeds the boss financially. But this guy's not capable. So when this guy is pushed back to the wall to make decisions or hold sway over somebody's life, Nine out of ten times, he's going to make the wrong decision. And that happened much too many times. That's bad um, yeah. and, and the wrong decision would be going against well, the family. Well, the wrong decision would be going against the family. Or Now, if you've got this guy in a violent scenario, being he's not known for violence, and he doesn't know how to judge whether somebody should be, live or somebody should die, because this guy's never been around that kind of activity. So, you know, so he's a little bit, little bit off course. He's pretty much off course. And now the street guy who's been out there in, in the trenches committing the violent acts, collecting the shakedown payments, going and doing the work, and everything like that, he gets passed over because the boss sees him as a viable threat. 
Ah. of taking over his position. And that guy winds up getting killed because he's too good at his position. People don't understand the, the mindset of a boss. The boss's mindset is to not only make money, but to put himself insulated to the point where his family could continue on to eat very well in his absence or while he's there. So if the boss is going to go to jail, he didn't want to put somebody who's going to take it over. He wants to put somebody there who he could control from prison. Mm-hmm. And that's how the, the links got weak over the years because a lot of guys who deserved it got passed up. Well, I'll tell you what, I thing I found fascinating recently in this, this bust that we read about of, uh, God, how many people were busted in this? Uh, 127. 127, yeah. yeah. And how many of that this came down because there were so many rats, so many people wearing wires, so many people. Well, well that's what it is. See, like, here's, here's what I, I did. A, I did an interview a few weeks ago, and when this first came down, somebody asked me the question. I said, you know what? I said, when you look at the scenario, it's pretty sad. And why is it sad? It's because you've got guys who they keep on throwing themselves in front of the fire, knowing what the outcome is going to be, but even before they start the game. The FBI stepped up all of their, you know, intelligence. They stepped up all their technology in today's world. They were, they're open seven days a week, 24 hours a day. They never quit. They never stopped. They got the financing of the U.S. government behind them. You're never going to win this war, you know. And these guys go out there every day thinking that they're going to be able to survive on the street committing the same crimes that we did 25 years ago. And it's they're not changing with the times because if you look at the, the crimes and the indictment, you got your basic boilerplate stuff, murder, extortion, uh, loan shark stuff, racketeering. There's no sophistication in the crimes. Yeah, I see and, this again. Mino soldiers shook down midtown real estate firms, say the feds. Could you know, be- yeah, I mean, exactly. So this is what you're dealing with. And what was there for me is I had a long-running history with a lot of the guys on the indictment. From my family, which was the Gambino family, and from many other families. And a lot of them I did time with. Like the boss of the Colombo family, who was the acting street boss, his name was Andrew Russo. Me and Andrew did time together. I always respected Andrew. He carried himself very well. He was a very intelligent guy. And this guy, if, if, if you didn't know, know this guy was a part of an organized crime family, you could have realized that this guy could have probably took himself anywhere in the financial world and made money. Mm-hmm. He, was, he, was that, he was that quick. And basically, you watch this guy. He's been in jail his whole life. He must have got a little shot of freedom. And now he's already back in prison because it is who he is. And that's the, basically the mindset I have as a kid. You know, you walked around, and they brainwashed us to believe that we would justify in our actions, that there was a thing of honor and respect, and we all know on this telephone that there is no such thing. Because at the end of the day, it's all about a bunch of guys trying to rob some money out there, and we just use each other so that law enforcement don't catch us. We're just, it's just like, you know, we play on a team together so that we can help each other escape our wrongdoings. But at the end of the day, you got a lot of jealousy, a lot of envy. You know, it's a shame to see it because a lot of guys make like they're your friends and your family and stuff like that. And I just said this the other day to somebody. I says, you know, they never tell you until you start to, you know, you see it for yourself that when you go to prison, nobody's going to help your family. But they always blind you with, we take care of our own, we do this, if you're family, you'll always be this. There's no set structure in place that if you go to jail, that they're going to take care of your family. You might be lucky. You might have two or three close friends who look out for your family when you first get incarcerated. But after a month or two passes, three months pass, that's it. They're going to forget about it. They're going to go about their own business. they got their own problems. So you got to tell your family they better get on a welfare line because nobody's going to help them. Nobody. Well, we're going to take a 60-second break. 
Fantastic. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored. Stay with us. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow. Now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. Don Waldman's off doing something barely legal. Filling in is Mark Boyer. Our guest is Andrew DiDonato, street soldier, Gambino crime family. The book is called Surviving the Mob, written with our good friend Dennis Griffin, who owns Las Vegas. Mark, you got a couple questions for our guest. Yes, sir. Well, your microphone seems to have uh, done something strange there. Just keep going. Were you ever involved in some of the uh, strong-arm activities that were going on? Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. We we were sent to do a lot of shakedown stuff, a, a collection of loan shark payments, things like that. Um, we want to get a message across. I'll give you, for instance, there was a diner in the neighborhood back in the day. I'm going back to, like, 1984, 1985. I think right about the time John Gotti was getting ready to take over, or, or probably when he did. And uh, we have these mandatory meetings with our crew maybe twice a week. And then my, my crew leader, Nikki Carrazzo, used to like to meet at this diner in Canarsie. And uh, one day, for whatever reason it was, the guy who owned the diner, he didn't disrespect us in any way, but he wasn't really getting the message that this was going to be our place. So what happened was Nikki sent me in there with another crew member of ours. And uh, it, was such a, it was such a joke to watch how this shakedown went, and you, you couldn't believe that the people never even realized how it happened. Me and another crew member went in, I sat at the counter like I ordered some food. My friend walked in, and we made it like we were strangers, and we just had an altercation at the table, and we just started making believe we were fist fighting. We broke some furniture, broke a few glasses, broke some stuff behind the bar, and then another crew member of ours, an older fella, walked in, and he like saved the day, he played the hero. And then what happens is, chased us out, told the owner, listen, you want to keep these punks out of here, we're the ones who could, we could do it. <laughs> the owner the owner turns around, next thing you know, we're in the place, this is our place now, and then two days later when we have our next meeting, I'm sitting at the table with everybody else. Doesn't the owner realize this? Sure, no. must. You know, but at that point it's too late, but it just goes to show you that 
you know, these are some of the activities that we did. So uh, what happened to most of your associates? Well, most of my associates, it's a, it's a sad game, but most of my associates are either in prison or dead. There's really no happy endings. There's really nothing I could tell you that any of them was able to walk away from the life unscathed or, you know, they're doing really well. You know, they're reaping the rewards of the money that they stole and they're living on a beach somewhere. It, it's a shame, but organized crime, there are no stories like that. Very, very few, and they're very, very much decades apart. And you didn't you didn't actually get to keep any of your ill-gotten booty or ill-boot and gotti. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good line. <laughs> But, uh, see, that's what it is. See, people don't understand something. You know, you feed the machine your whole life. You feed the machine, you feed the machine. And when you're done feeding the machine, you're expendable like everybody else. You're only as good as your last earn. And everybody knows that, but they still they still go forward thinking it's a life to live. It's very interesting that you say that because I've heard the exact same thing from FBI agents. In fact, they have a uh, like an exit therapy program for people leaving the FBI where they say, you loved the Bureau, but the Bureau never loved you. <laughs> yeah, because you're just, you're, just, you're, just one, you're just one mechanism in the whole machine to keep it running. That's all you are. And, and I learned this at a very young age that no one man is more important than the whole and no one man is more important than the family. And basically, if you have to, they expect you to give yourself up for the family's sake in any sort of activity. You have to insulate your boss, throw yourself in front of the flames, but there's nothing there for your loyalty. You don't get, very few guys get back, in, uh, how can I say, very few guys get back interest on their investment. So you invest your whole life doing what you're supposed to do. And all it takes is one scenario, and all the good you ever did is out the window. And that one bad thing you did, they, they crucify you for. That sounds just like radio. <laughs> it could be. They might have, they might have got cut the mold from this jockey. Yeah. It's, that's like we had the, uh, the lady on uh, last week who was married to a, a hitman in, in Vegas. And uh, she had two hitmen and a disc jockey. I said, well, that makes sense. <laughs> it's three out of three. Yeah. A weatherman. A weatherman. A weatherman. Well, same difference. <laughs> this thing with nicknames. I know there was a whole thing that was done on these guys having nicknames like uh, Tony Bagels and Jello Coutinia and uh, Dapper Don Gotti and Scarface Capone and Jack the Whack. And uh, how important are these nicknames in the family? Are they really that well, important? You know, well, you, well, basically, because this way you have to understand something. We come from we come from neighbors where there might be fifteen guys named Anthony or Tony. There might be twelve or thirteen guys named named Joe. They, you know, whatever. So what happens is to distinguish the two, you could say, you know, uh, hey, for argument's sake, uh, like you just said, Joey Bagel. So Joey Bagel, you say Bagel because either his family was in the bagel business or he had a store at one point. Or there was another guy who used to work at the Knights of Columbus, one of our social clubs in East New York. His nickname was Tony Shovels because he had big hands. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, tell them these, apart. Yeah, you know what I mean? So these, these, are the, these are the things, just so that you can remember properly. And then what happened is when law enforcement started to eavesdrop on conversations and that became an issue, it was easier to give somebody's nickname as opposed to throwing them under the bus when you had something to say, you know. Uh, the guys in the Genovese crew, they never even spoke with the word Vince Giganti. They weren't allowed to say his name. So whenever they wanted to refer to him, speaking about the chin, they should just touch their chin. Oh. I mean, just all these little traits that, that you pick up over the years, and it's all, it's all according to trying to keep out of the eye of the government. 
That's all that came down to these nicknames. Now, it's interesting is that Georgia Durante, who wrote the book, The Company She Keeps, she was a driver delivering money. And what she said, she, I asked her uh, after her book came out if she was worried about repercussions from from crime, and she was she was more worried about repercussions from the government because she was delivering the money to the to the feds. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. See, that's what she she basically it's it's what the, one of the number one questions they asked me, and that is, you know, Andrew, you know, do you feel you know, you know, are you, are you in danger? Listen, I'll always be in danger. But I was in the same amount of danger when I was in the life as I am now. There's no, no, diff, there's no different levels of dead. Yeah. And the threat, the threat is still the same. You have to have a healthy respect for what you were involved in. You always have to be on your mark, and you always just got to act accordingly. And I understand that, you know, made the chips fall where they may. If that's supposed to be my lot in life, that this is going to happen. When the time comes, I will... Meet it head on like I did everything else in my life. But how and does a how does a guy have a wife and family when you're in this life? It's very very hard because when you have a wife and family in this life, the only thing you're trying to you only thing you're trying to do is keep up with the Joneses to keep up a, a normal persona like everybody else. But guys like us to get married while we're doing this activity is just we're being very selfish because we cannot give to our families. When I was a married man in the family, I was never home. My son never got to see me. Then I went to prison. Then he didn't see me for another five years. Then when Jeez. I came home, I was on the run. I was never home. I was on the run the next 17 months. I mean, and I always thought that money was being a man, but it's not. It's better to fit. Once those opportunities are gone, Andrew, they're gone, and that must, that must tear you up. Oh, without a doubt, because you know what? You realize, although I got my life back, every day's a struggle to pick up more pieces of my life. And Losing that time with my son and not being there the way that I should have as a parent and should have been there as a man, I wasn't because I was married to organized crime and that was my first loyalty because I ate up that whole respect loyalty thing with a spoon. It's what I was raised to be. It was what I seen all around me and I thought that you thought I it was, was real. Of my actions. You drank the Kool-Aid. Yes, sir, what? I definitely drank the Kool-Aid. And I, there's a neighborhood of kids now where I grew up who are still drinking the Kool-Aid. And the sad part is, is that these guys are going to have to either learn by trial by fire, by actually getting burned and throwing their lives away. And that's why I wrote the book, because I said if there's one smart kid out there who could see what I'm saying as the truth, and we could save that one kid, we'd be in good shape. So what turned you around? What 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 precipitated your? It was just. It was just. Let me say something. It was just a whole bunch of stuff combined. But I think the most important thing was is that we were my first incarceration in nine ninety four. I was away for five years. I had gone away, and everything always was all for one, one for all. And you know, some promises made to me while I was away, and it showed just how one sided this life was. My 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 wife, my ex wife. Now she had a struggle for the years that I was away. She got very minimal help. You know, the only time they really showed that they wanted to help me is when they found out that I was coming home. Now they knew that they were going to have to face me. So now all of a sudden people started stopping by the house. Oh, yeah, they started yeah. going to see my mother. And you realize it was all bull BS. Mm -hmm. So now I come home. I start getting involved. And I start seeing the life as it's very self-preservation kicks in. A lot of guys are really traditions are out the window. A lot of guys got made over those time period I was gone and didn't belong in position. Guys who you would have never thought in a million years, they're up there doing this thing and it's all politics and you know that they got their position for me to 
kissing, you know, yeah. kissing butt or whatever you want to say, the whole bit. And uh, it was kind of weird to see because now you're analyzing this and being your way for so long, you start to be a real good judge of people because that was your survival skill in prison. And I started to see guys for truly who they were and then nobody could feed me the nonsense anymore. And then how it really came to be was uh, I was in an incident where I was on the run from law enforcement. Two of my friends had just been murdered and I didn't know who to trust. I didn't know where the bullet might be coming from next. I was in a kill or be killed scenario. And I went to go meet some guy one day. And when I took the phone call for the meeting, my mother had overheard the conversation. My mother followed me to the meeting, unbeknownst to me, like a few, within about a mile from, my, from where I was staying. And I go to the meeting, and it was outside. And halfway through this conversation I'm having with this guy, I look over, I see my mother a few park benches away. And I almost, you know, my heart was coming through my chest. I was like, Jesus Christ. And I looked over, and I see my mother there, and my mother's actually got, you know, she's loaded for bear, my mother. <laughs> and I'm looking at her, and my mother was so afraid of me losing my life the way my two friends just did, that here she was following me to try and protect me, a woman who never hurt anybody in her life. And it was still like one of the saddest days of my life, and I knew right then and there that... What I was doing in the street was just destroying my family. And there was never going to be no way to come out of this in a happy scenario or in a positive light. And I started to really make these evaluations. And those, those were the turnaround moments. Those were the wake-up moments where you knew that, hey, listen, your life isn't this honorable thing that you thought. Now I'm looking in the mirror and I'm shaving my face and I realize that, you know what I am? I'm just a, I'm a mobster. And I'm not proud of who I became, and I wasn't stupid, don't get me wrong, I'm not here stupid saying that I thought I was, you know, doing these things were, was acceptable, mm -hmm. I understand that, but the thing is, is that the way they feed it to you over the years, you actually feel justified in your actions, I didn't feel that way anymore. Well, you got mutual I, reinforcement all the time. Yes, exactly, but now I've seen it as, now I knew what I was, re who I really was, and it pained me because I wasn't this honorable guy, I wanted the people in the public to perceive me as and I couldn't lie to myself and I seen that friends of mine were dying for nothing my friends were murdered over nothing over 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 ego stuff over you know just and I knew that once they were murdered and I was in some knowledge of information that could have put the boss away in prison I knew that I was on an oxygen tank mm -hmm. you, you were on borrowed time right away well, yeah, because you know that in this life information is power and no matter how loyal you are, if you got information that could be detrimental to anybody in a high-ranking position, it's always safer to send flowers. And believe me, they were going to send flowers when it came to me. So what did you do? So what I did was I became a cooperating witness after law enforcement arrested me. And it wasn't an easy decision. So don't sit here and think it was easy, because it wasn't. Because now I'm forced to became what I was indoctrinated to hate. And it was really, really... I mean, I went through an emotional roller coaster oh, boy. during the course of making this decision because I couldn't, I couldn't see myself doing it. And then I realized that I had never made a decision for myself. I had never made a decision for myself. Every decision I made was for these people, for their benefit, for how they were going to perceive things. And then I'm saying to myself, the first legitimate chance they get, they're going to kill me. Where's the honor of protecting them at this point? There isn't any. Right. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. And now I sat there, but still, you know, you still live with such a stigma because organized crime is so 
in the fabric of where I grew up that they put you in a scenario where they know you got two options. It's either you're going to go out in a blaze of glory and you're going to get taken out. Let's face it. My problem was with the boss of the family. There's a no-win scenario. No matter how tough I thought I was, how many violent scenarios I was involved with, and I was involved in quite a few, there was no winning this. There was no winning. So the only way that I can get out of this with my life is the truth. So I won. I, I shouldn't say won, because there's no winning or losing here. Everybody's a loser in this, in, in this scenario. But that's the way I stood alive. I stood alive by revealing the truth. So is your life still in danger? You're going to witness protection. What's keeping you from being bumped off right now? Well, you know what? My instincts. That's what's keeping me from bumped off right now. I move around pretty good. I, uh, you know, I come and go very, you know, often. I, uh, you know, I change this often. I change that often. I make all the procedures that I have to do. I'm in contact with, with FBI people all the time because I'm still an active witness. And I have cases probably even coming down the pipe this year. And, um... You know, and it's not nothing to be proud of, but it's a, it's a, it was it was the price I had to pay to get my life back, because that's what organized crime did. And I was a grown man, and I I take responsibility for my actions. But organized crime takes a bit of your your identity and your soul away. We're going to take a sixty second break. We'll be right back with Teddy Griffin is hiding back there, counting his books. <laughs> Andrew DiDonato, Street Soldier's Life Inside the Gambino Crime Family Book is called Surviving the Mob. We will be right back. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you're no longer tied to your computer like some sort of wimp. You're now free to roam around all you want. You can drag Outlaw Radio kicking and screaming with you all over the world. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. In case you don't understand what I'm saying, this means you can take the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you love, that you follow, and have it follow you like an underpaid private eye. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with the well-known has-beens on Outlaw Radio. Change your ways. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now your life is different because you got your phone, one of those darn iPhone apps, and now the damn thing works great. And you can listen to LR Radio. Buy several today, except they're free. At an iPhone store near you, and there aren't any near you. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. Yes, of course. Burl Bear, I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. 
I am the legendary Burl Bear. The man in the lawyer chair is not the lawyer. It's Mark Boyer, our fact checker extraordinaire. Hello. I'd like to give you, uh, before we get back to our interview here, a little update on, uh, you can always go to outlawcrime.com and see who's coming up on the show. Next week, Charlie Manson. Uh, not in person, but the... Uh, I'm, I'm so disappointed. Uh, yeah, well, he couldn't get out of the slammer. We do have uh, <laughs> the author of the new book, Charlie Manson Now. Find out what Charlie's up to today. Uh, the next week, we have... Uh, and our guest today would find this show interesting, Uncle Al Capone. Al Capone's niece shares her happy childhood memories of dear Uncle Al. And then uh, the week after that, what a lineup. We got Peter Christ of Leap, law enforcement against prohibition, joining former Jewish meth whore uh, Amy Dresner. <laughs> she's still Jewish, uh, no longer on meth, and whether or not she's a whore, our audience will decide for themselves. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know later. But yeah. <laughs> it's a great combination. <laughs> and then Caitlin Rother will be joining us at the end of February. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, surviving the mob, a street soldier's life inside the Gambino crime family by Dennis Griffin and Andrew DiDonato. And, uh, boy, you must have had great fun testifying at the Junior Gotti and Mike Yanotti trial. Well, I wouldn't call it fun because, you know what, you're never happy to go into those kind of circumstances. But, you know, when you're called upon to... To, to go and testify, it's something that, you know, when you sign your, your plea agreement, it's something that, you know, you may be asked to do. It's very sad because me and uh, Mr. Yanati had a long history together. We were, you know, we grew up as kids together. And um, so it wasn't a happy occasion at all. And uh, all I could say is I, it, it brought me no pleasure. You know, that I could tell you. And uh, it's just sad because I watched him throw his life away for these people who pretty much they don't care one way or another about him or me or anything. And, you know, I I was in that same position as him, uh, you know, times before this. And uh, I had the same mindset that he did, that I was doing something honorable. And I'm sure every day now he starts to realize a little bit more each day that the life isn't what he thought it was the same way I see it now. And Mark, you got a couple questions here. But how many other um, uh, friends of yours, acquaintances, did you testify against? Well, I, there was there was a number of cases that I was on. I don't know the exact number, but there was quite there was there was enough. Believe me, there was a lot of cases. And uh, on these other cases, I I would say fortunate enough that these people they pleaded guilty to the information on the indictment of my information and other witnesses' information, so I didn't have to go to a trial. Um, but I'm still an active witness, and there's still more cases coming. So I don't know wow. if I'm going to be called upon to testify. But there's been a lot of people throughout the throughout the years that I was involved in their cases because you gotta remember something I've been in the street my whole life since 16 years old and I did a lot of crimes with a lot of people and you know the justice system catches up with you one way or another and um, so these cases just keep on coming I mean I, I started cooperating in 1997 and I'm still being used today so think of how long how the wheels of justice turn they turn slowly but they continue to turn sounds a lot like Henry Hill you Except know, you're not well, drunk. <laughs> um, you were you were mentioning that you take you take steps to uh, keep or at least try to keep yourself a little safe. Uh, do you have any fears for your family? Well, you know what it is. That's just it. See, it's never about me. When a guy like me gets found in the street, it's not a tragedy. It's the life that I chose many many years ago or whatever. But I have a, a responsibility to those around me, and that responsibility is to take all the precautions and respect the life and everything around it to protect them because it's never about you it's about the people that are around you most importantly so yes we 
I go through the motions every day. Every day it's a routine for me. And I go through the same routines every day. And a little bit of paranoia has kept me alive for many, many years. When I was in the street and I was on the hit parade, and I knew damn well that they were going to come and get me, or I was going to go and get them, I used to follow that same protocol. And... Um, well, that's why they, they say that there's a, a riddle, and that is, uh, who's five foot three, blonde, big breasts, and lives in Idaho? And the answer is Andrew DiDonato. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what? And, the, and the funny part is, is that you know I'm I'm not one of those guys who went out there trying to you know change his looks or or this that the other thing. I take the I take the proper steps that I got to do though. And you know what? I do my deal due diligence, and listen, I'm no stranger to the danger, so, you know, if it's going to be, they're going to come, I'm living a solid citizen's life, I'm not going to put myself in harm's way, but if they come for me, I will do whatever it takes to protect myself, and let's just leave it at that. I got a question for you about your wife, your ex-wife. When she married you, did she know what you did for a living? Of course she did. And how did she, how'd she feel about that? You know what, I'll tell you the truth, no matter what anybody says, you know, it's like they just get up in the moment. You get caught up in the moment. You have, you know, there's emotions there. You already have feelings for each other. And I'm sure she would rather have me have been something else, but she wasn't going to throw away the feelings that she had for me because this was my chosen path. You stick behind the people you love no matter what, and you're just hoping for a better day sometime. Unfortunately, when it comes to organized crime, there is no better day. Just gets worse. It just gets worse. And you know what? If it isn't this kind of problem today, it's a different kind of problem tomorrow. It's a, it's a nonstop 24-7 stress ride. And I can tell you, I've been in so many stressful positions with situations in the street that it could have stopped a two-ton elephant. Dennis put that in the book, and I think that's the best way to describe it. You know, last week when we were talking to the uh, the lady who was married to the hitman and talking about all the stress and all the anxiety, uh, Matt Allen, our brilliant and talented, scantily clad producer, uh, passed me a note and said, oh, I bet she loved it because, you know, what would the life been like otherwise? And so I'll ask you the same question. When you look back on all the stress, the anxiety, and, and the waste of your life, you could have been a CPA, you know, with a white picket fence and uh, a life of quiet desperation instead of active desperation. If you could do it differently all over again, would you do it differently all over again? Well, you know something? I was in a good conversation just about that question just the other day with a dear friend of mine, and his name is Frank Collada, and he's also a government witness. And Frank told something to me, and it stuck in my mind, and he hit it right on the head, and i got to repeat it. I will never think that I should have did anything differently because who I was turned me into who I am today. And I could finally say that I'm happy on who I am today. I'm in a position to have so much knowledge behind me now to help other people and to see people and to be a good, you know, get a good perspective of a person. And I'm in a position now where people could actually learn from my history. And I got something to give now. And I'm happy. I'm in a good place. So I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't change a thing at this point because now I'm where I need to be. Well, as the, the old, uh, old expression, if you save one life, it's as if you've saved all mankind. And you were saying earlier, for what you're doing and what you're saying in the DVD and the, the new book, Surviving the Mob, can get through to one person not to go down this path, and it saves their life, it's, uh, it was worth it. It lifts your life up to the level of sacrifice. Yeah, that's what it is, because you get a lot of kids out there, and nobody really sits them down to tell them the reality of it. Now, when I was coming up, we seen the money, we seen all the stuff that, you know, your eyes open like, you know, 
like silver dollars. You see so much in front of you, and you think like this is the way to be. But you don't see that other side of the coin. You don't see the, the years away from your family. You don't see friends getting buried at 17, 18 years old. You don't see, you know, people you would grew up with for 30 years, you know, all of a sudden that friendship's out the window because their loyalty is in question, and they're told they have to come and kill you now. And now basically... They're going to take 30 years of friendship, throw it down the drain so they can get themselves a leg up in the crime family and get themselves a position. They're going to use you to get a position. So you you found yourself dealing with basically a lot of sociopaths and psychopaths either born that way or created. Created. And basically that's it. And, And you know what? And that's a sad proposition because when you look back upon it, a lot of guys, that's why guys so much want to put the blame on guys like me while we cooperated. Well, this guy, if it wasn't for this guy, I wouldn't have got 30 years. But nobody ever takes responsibility for their own actions. Nobody told me to go in the street with a, with, a, with a gun in my hand. I did it myself. And you know what? I paid the price. I did my jail time. But when the situation came that they wanted me to still protect them, even though they were looking to kill me, how narcissistic <laughs> no, do you want to be? No, no. You, you don't protect those people who want to kill you. Even I know that. <laughs> But this is what they wanted. But see, that's, that's the arrogance of organized crime. The arrogance is that I've been controlling you so long. You've got two options. You eat your own arm and became what you were raised to hate, or you throw your life away and you become a witness. And they're, bet, they're betting on the fact that you're going to throw your life away. And I choose not to. And that's what I did. Now i got a question for Denny. You there, Denny? I'm here. Of course you are. <laughs> now, here you are hanging out with this guy who's got people who want to want to bump him off. Uh, he's still got to testify. I can say he's not running around with a blonde wig and falsies, but, you know, he's, he's keeping alive. Do you have any concern that being is that you might know something, that uh, there's going to be a hammer put down on you to, to cough up information about him? Yeah, you know, I, I think about that uh, frequently. I, I always try to be very, very cautious not to say anything that put Andrew in any type of jeopardy or or give someone who may want to cause him harm any type of information or lead or that type of thing. So, yes, that's always on uh, on my mind. And, and perhaps, as Andrew says, he does his due diligence and takes certain steps every day. Uh, I, I guess I'm kind of in that mindset, too, from a little different perspective. But it is an issue for me, yes, and it's something I do think about. Now, when you guys were, were doing the book, Surviving the Mob, which is available now wherever fine books are sold from Huntington Press in Las Vegas, how did you work together? Did you do it in person? Did you do it back and forth on the phone? Uh, a lot of emails, a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls. Um, the phone bill went up pretty good, but it was worth <laughs> it. Um, basically, it was like that because uh, Dennis, Dennis was out in Las Vegas. I was living where I'm living, and it's just been... A hell of a ride to get it done that way. It didn't slow down the process though, because we were really, we really gave it some good attention. I mean, me and Dennis would exchange maybe thirty emails a day and be on the phone sometimes five, six hours a day. Well, the book does start off hot. I got to give uh, you guys credit the way you structured the book. Uh, being a true crime writer, I know how important it is to grab someone from the very get go, and this book sure does by setting up you, Bob Ray, to blow some guy's brain out, shoot him in the head, and he doesn't die. Thank God. <laughs> That was a blessing, blessing to you. A hundred percent. See, people don't realize something. You know, the difference between me and walking around with that thing on my shoulder and on my mind of taking somebody's life was an inch either way with that bullet. And that wasn't the only shooting incident I was involved in. It happened many a times. And maybe it was just my, just my destiny that this wouldn't happen. And I'm, I'm happy for that because you know what? It wasn't from a lack of trying. At that period of time, I definitely intended to do this person the 
harm like that. And um, we well, I'd say I'm if you put a gun to his head and pull the trigger, that's pretty indicative yeah. of your intention. So yeah, well, 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 what I'm just trying to say is that I'm glad at least now today he's able to live his life. I live my life, and I realize that I'm a very lucky individual all around the board. All around the board. It's amazing that you're still alive, and the book is called Surviving the Mob, A Street Soldier's Life Inside the Gambino Crime Family. There's also a DVD. What's the story on that? Well, the DVD was more or less used because we sort of like put a campaign together that we wanted to reach out to at-risk youth, and we wanted to go, and there's a lot of kids out there with misconceptions that they can be a part of gangs is way to go. And a lot of kids come from homes where there's, there's no structure, and the only way that they could find that family togetherness they feel is in gang activity. And I belong to one of the most recognized and biggest gangs in the country, and that was the Gambino crime family. And the only thing different between our gang and you see these gangs in the street is that we were more sophisticated. But it's still, at the end of the day, it's a gang nonetheless. What's the matter? So we thought that this would be a proper way to put this DVD together to let the kids see me in a transitional state where I'm showing in the beginning of the film how much I think I'm a part of something great, how I think that, you know, I got the key to the city and we're in the know of all this information and how ain't the whole world doing what we're doing and how everybody else is a sucker. And then I started to show the bumps and the bruises along the way. I started to show the dark side of it. I start to show how the friendships get split. I start to show how people can't be trusted. I start to show how it unravels when you go to prison and how nobody's there for you and how this comes down. And at the end, I show all the things that I lost. The loss of my son, the loss of my mother, the loss of my sisters. I can't go and, you know, be a good son, a good brother, a good father to, the, to my family because this is the position that I'm in. And even though I'm alive, it's, it's not a happy ending. So you want the kids to see that, but you also try to get the message that no matter how bad your life is, or maybe you think it is, there's always hope when you could always turn it around, and you don't need these other people to step up and be a man. You can look inside yourself and see your own potential, and the gangs are only fruitful because you're the one who makes them fruitful by doing these things for them. They don't do anything for you, it's because of you is why they thrive. Well, thank, you. thank you so much for your time. We've run out of it, but i got to tell you, it's an incredible book, an incredible story, Surviving the Mob, A Street Soldier's Life Inside the Gambino Crime Family by Dennis N. Griffin and Andrew DiDonato. Uh, good luck to you. Stay alive, pal. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. You guys have a good weekend. You too. Denny, keep selling those books. Thanks a lot, guys. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Right. What a life. What a story. Jeez. Well, at least he's, he's up to doing some good now. Hopefully he can turn some people around, save some lives, and keep people from having to go through the crap he's gone through. Speaking of crap, uh, Mark and I are going to stick around <laughs> to join the Demons of Decadence live in the Land of Lounge. Because Matt Allen, the man who rules the universe of Internet Radio, is coming up next. Oh, I see all sorts of stars. This is where the stars come out to play. When their careers are over, they come here on Saturday. Just put-